Well, amen, amen. Great singing this morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. As we come to the seventh and final letter written to the churches of Asia Minor. We live in a day and we live in a time which has often been described as being apathetic. A day where complacency has set in. A day and time where it seems as though no one cares about many of the things that once have been cared about deeply in times past. Now we know that times change and we know that people change. We know that sometimes out with the old and in with the new is better, even if it's hard for us to accept. But I think we would all agree that many of the things that have changed and many of the old things that have kind of faded away and many of the new things that have kind of drifted to the forefront are not necessarily changes for the better. And while many of these things have happened on a spiritual front, more particularly on a Christian front, much of the church has kind of set back and watched and perhaps wrung their hands, lamented that it was happening, but did little or nothing to ultimately stop it. I have read over and over again descriptions of the church in our day and time, in our articles and in books, whole chapters, even whole books devoted to the apathy that characterizes and even plagues the church today. Apathy is defined as the absence of passion, emotion, and excitement. We live in a day and we live in a world that is largely indifferent and largely apathetic about the church and the things of God. And even in many cases, the church is apathetic and indifferent about itself. We could fairly well say, in fact, that the church is lukewarm. In this upside-down world, and in this upside-down day and age in which we live, sports stadiums can be easily filled, concert halls can be easily filled, restaurants, it's hard to find a parking place, and sometimes we'll sit for 45 minutes waiting for a table in order to eat and pay good money to eat there. There's no shortage of people going to the mall. There's no shortage of people in clothing stores and retail stores of every kind. So there are things that we care about, that our world cares about, and we show that by our attendance and by our finances. The church, by and large, is complacent. And it's comfortable there. The church may desire more. You talk to people, you talk to pastors, you talk to laymen, you talk to lay leaders within the church. And it seems that everyone in our day and time desires more people. We desire better finances, better offerings, more volunteers, 
more people to attend Sunday school, more people be involved in any particular program. But it's always, it seems, seen in terms of other people needing to do something and never we ourselves needing to do more. This is a day and age where people would rather work, though, to raise something up themselves rather than to pray something down from God. Remember the talk there used to be in yesteryear of praying for a Holy Ghost, heaven-sent revival? And yet, churches that try to have uh, church-wide prayer meetings and churches that have cottage prayer meetings leading up to revival or even for no particular reason other than just for the, the no need for prayer. It's hard to get anyone to attend. It seems that this has been pushed to the back burner and yet we wonder why our churches have such little power. This was the problem in Laodicea, the seventh of the seven churches. They were in their groove. They felt self-sufficient, self-sustaining. They were no longer even aware of what they were doing. They just kind of were on autopilot. Christ always has been and still is the power of the church. You can seek other power sources than the true power source, but you're not going to get the impact from them that you get from the true power source. You can if you decided to, all right, I'm done with electricity. I'm done with paying my bill. I'm tired of buying light bulbs. I'm tired of flipping the light switch or plugging things in. I'm done with all that. We're going to use coal oil lamps now to light our home. Well, you could do that, but that's not very efficient. You can do church without the power source, Christ, but it's not very efficient to do it that way. Not very productive. In fact, many would say, why the waste of even going through the motions if you're not going to do it with the power that Christ brings? Christ is always, always has been the power of the church, but in Laodicea and in the modern church, it has been often proven church can be done without Him. Paul wrote to Timothy, warning him of the perilous times that were to come. And those perilous times would be characterized most of all by selfishness. Selfish desires displaying themselves in evil ways. Men with evil motives would be prevalent. In the latter times, he said mankind would, in 2 Timothy 3, 5, have a form of godliness, but would deny its power. In other words, a form, appearance, means more or less going through the motions doing some activities that one might deem to be godly. But yet there's no power behind it. And if we know that Christ is the source of power, what is saying there, what Paul is saying to Timothy is, is that man would have the appearance of being godly, 
but it would be devoid of the power of Jesus Christ behind it. That was the church at Laodicea. The one that Christ describes as lukewarm. And then he goes on to say there in 2 Timothy, writing to the young pastor, he says, and from such people turn away. Turn away from people like that. They will do you no good. They will not help your ministry. They will not enhance the cause of Christ in this world. From such people, he sternly warns, turn away. Laodicea indeed had a form. They had an appearance of godliness. But there was simply no power. Because Jesus Christ was no longer really a part of the church. Oh, his name might have appeared on the sign. Maybe even in the bulletin. Maybe his name was invoked when they met together. But as far as really following him, being led by him, being sold out to him, not so much. I invite you to take with me your Bibles now and stand together in honor of the reading of God's word. As we read from Revelation chapter 3, beginning in the 14th verse. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments. You may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with the fathers on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Lord, we bow our hearts before you this morning. And as we come to this seventh and final church that you addressed, we pray, Father, that we might see in us that which needs to be changed. We live in a perilous time. And we pray, Father, that we would see what needs to be changed, beginning with us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. As you're seated. First of all, we see a description of Christ to this church. 
And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. The city of Laodicea itself was about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia and about 90 miles east of Ephesus. It was a thriving city that had banks. It had a textile industry, mainly wool, in fact, a medical school. The city was also known for a, having a sparse water supply. All of these characteristics would come into play as Christ uh, specifically talked to the church. He knew each church intimately and he knew the city with, in which they, the church dwelt. Jesus is said to be to them the Amen. Amen means the true one. If someone uh, says something and another person responds, Amen, they're basically saying, it is true, it is correct, it is so. And so Christ is described here as being the Amen, or the true one. He is called further the faithful and true witness. The one who does not lie, the one who speaks words of absolute truth, who is truth. He is the beginning, meaning that he holds the first place or is the ruler of all of God's creation. The Apostle John, writing in John chapter 1, said of Christ specifically, He was in the beginning with God, and all things were created through him, and nothing was made apart from him. He was in the beginning with God. Christ the Son was with God the Father, from the beginning. He is the beginning, meaning that He holds the first place. He is ultimately the ruler of all of God's creation. Now these words of description are things that they should have already known about Christ, but they needed to be reminded of them, and that's true of all of us. We have to be reminded of the things that we already know. We have to get a little refresher course in many things that we learned long ago. When a football coach yells at one of his players, block, block, that's not the first time that that player has heard of the need to block. It's just a reminder. In a moment of frustration, probably when the player is not blocking or didn't block, the coach yells out, block, block. Christ is in effect saying to the church here, you know these things. You know that I am the Amen, the true one. You know that I am the faithful and true witness. You know that I am the beginning and all things were created through me. And you know that I hold the first place as the ruler over all of God's creation. Notice next with me a rebuke of this congregation. This is the only one of the letters to the seven churches that the Lord did not have something complimentary to say. When it comes to commendation, to compliments, there were none for the church at Laodicea. Many claim that we're living in a Laodicean kind of church age. In fact, some dictionaries now have a term 
the term Laodicean, and it's defined as being lukewarm or indifferent. Over time, literally, the church at Laodicea has come to be an adjective describing lukewarmness or apathy or complacency. Many people say that this is the time that we're living in. Some see, and we talked about this at the outset, that some see the seven churches as representing various ages down through church history. And they may to some extent. You run into a few problems if you press that too hard. But there's something for the church of every age in every letter that was written and and that was certainly addressed. But we definitely live in a time of lukewarmness at best. And coldness at worst. Christ's words in verse 15 are alluding to Laodicea's water supply. Their water supply traveled several miles through an underground aqueduct before reaching the city. When the water arrived, it was tepid, it was dirty, it was nasty, and was not good for drinking. They had various ways of filtering the water and making it better. But still, they didn't have a very good water supply. And when it first arrived, it was quite foul. It was not hot enough to relax in. You think of hot springs like the hot springs of Hierapolis, where you could actually enjoy that, like taking a hot bath, maybe good for your arthritis or whatever ailed you. And it was also not cool and refreshing like the water that that came from the stream of Colossae. And Colossae, uh, the city in whom Paul wrote the New Testament letter of Colossians to, was not very far. In fact, it was considered by many as a, a sister city to Laodicea. We know what to do with hot water. We can make coffee or tea out of it, and we like cold beverages, cool water. Uh, if, a, if a beverage like, uh, like Coke or something, or tea is too warm, we put ice cubes in it to cool it off. We know what to do with hot and we know what to do with cold. But if your coffee cup sits there for 20 minutes on your desk and you don't get to drink it, and then you try to take a sip of it, and it tastes terrible, doesn't it? It's not necessarily cold. It's a little more probably than room temperature still, but it's unpalatable because it's become lukewarm. Jesus tells them that it would be better for them if they were hot or if they were cold. But because they are lukewarm, he says, I'm going to spew you or I'm going to vomit you. Strongest word, perhaps, or one of the strongest words he could use for rejection. If you were to put something really nasty in your mouth and you couldn't wait in that split second, to get it out of your mouth because it tasted so bad. It tasted so rancid. I remember one time we had a, had a cobbler, I think an apple cobbler, and it sat on the stove for several days with foil over it before it was all gone. And I remember getting me a big bowl of that and putting ice cream on it. Got ready to eat it and I took the first bite and I could not get that out of my mouth fast enough. It had become moldy sitting there on the stove. Jesus, in tasting this church, says you're lukewarm. 
You're tepid. You're gross. You're nasty. You're only fit for rejection because of, of where you're at right now. Jesus tells them, it'd be better off if you were cold. Now, what does he mean? Does Jesus really think that if they were cold, that would somehow be better? There is a purpose for things that are cold, and there are a purpose for things that are hot. But the lukewarmness was simply unpalatable. Jesus warned. And I think this is where the church at Laodicea was. They were going through the motions and they were doing a lot of the things that they thought were right and the things that they thought were good. So therefore, they thought they were okay. Jesus said these words, though, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. He warned of a time, he said, where many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? cast out demons in your name, and done many other wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It was bad enough that they were lukewarm. But the worst thing of all was that they were self-deceived about it. They thought they were a lot warmer than what they were. Their thermometers were perhaps broken. And they couldn't tell. They'd become so comfortable being lukewarm. You know, they talk about now, what, you know, the 40 is the new 30 and 50 is the new 40. Well, lukewarm was the new hot at Laodicea. They thought they were hot. They all were on fire for God. After all, we've got an evangelism program here. We're great at discipleship. We have a discipleship program. We're great at worship. After all, we have a worship service. Just having something that you label as something doesn't mean that it is what the Lord desires for it to be. The city of Laodicea was wealthy. And no doubt this carried over into the church and like all people have a tendency to do, is they find security in their wealth. They had finances. The church was likely made up of people involved in the wool industry. Perhaps the banking. Somehow connected with the medical school that existed in Laodicea. Everyone was comfortable. The church was made up of professionals. People that did okay and they were respectable in their community. You see this going on in America, don't you? That the more and more wealthy we become, the more and more church attendance declines. The more and more people live as though they don't need God anymore. God is being cast aside. Back when people were much poorer, certainly by today's standards, People served God, people were involved in their churches at a much higher rate than they are now. But just like the church at Laodicea, people in America today are self-deceived about reality. You see, reality is what it is. 
Whether we believe it or whether we accept it or not, it is what it is. The attitude of the church mirrored this attitude found citywide. They were deeply prideful people. And prideful people think that they don't need any help. They're self-sufficient. They're okay. They don't need advice. They don't need help. They don't need anything. Truly prideful people. Pride leads people to think, I'm okay and I don't need you. And whether they would admit it or not, that also carries over to God. I'm okay. I'm fine. I'll be all right. And if I need you, God, I'll let you know. Isn't that kind of how our world works? You'd be surprised how many people I've encountered over the years that in a desperate moment in their life, all of a sudden they need a pastor. All of a sudden they need the church. They have no use, though, for God or His church or anything as long as things seem to be going okay in their lives. But then things take a turn for the worse and they don't know what else to do anymore. And so, in desperation, they turn. Why do we not all feel desperate all the time? Well, we should because we live in a sinful world. We're plagued by sin. We succumb to sin ourselves. We have needs. But they didn't think they had needs. In fact, the Lord tells them you don't realize that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Notice the correction for the congregation in verses 18 through 20. After a rebuke like this, we might have expected the Lord to just destroy the church. After all, it was just full of hypocrites, right? But He doesn't do that. In fact, He gives them some specific instructions on how they can turn things around. Jesus' threefold appeal played to the three features of the city that they were the most proud of. Their wealth their wool industry, and their production of a specific kind of ISAD. He offered to replace these three things with spiritual gold, spiritual clothes, and spiritual sight. First, Christ advised them to buy from Him gold refined in the fire, which symbolizes redemption. Did you know that the more that you heat gold, the more impurities you bring out of the gold? And so the purest gold, uh, solid gold, 24 karat gold, the highest grades of gold, are the ones that's been heated the most and the most impurities have been removed. Second, he advised them to buy white garments so as to clothe themselves and not have to walk naked and have their shame on display. Remember... The children's story, the emperor has no clothes, where a couple of swindlers came along and they convinced the emperor that they would make a special suit of clothes for him that only those who were the most pure and honorable in the kingdom could actually see. 
Well, they made these, they claimed to make these clothes, but there really were no clothes. They pretended to put them on the king while he stood there naked. All those in his administration did not want to expose themselves as being impure themselves, so they played along. Oh, yes, yes, they look great. The emperor even went out and was paraded before the people, and the people knew of all of this, and they were afraid to say anything. And so they kept to themselves what seemed obvious, that the emperor had no clothes. But finally, a small child who wasn't aware of all that was going on, blurted out, the emperor has no clothes. And finally, the people realizing that this had all just been a joke or a sham, they began to laugh. But the emperor, not wanting to admit that he had been swindled, continued to play along and smile and act like everything was okay. The Lord here promises the Laodicean church to buy them white garments, real garments, so that they won't have to walk naked and that their shame be on display. Finally, he offers them eye salve to anoint their eyes. There was a special kind of eye salve that was produced in Laodicea that apparently did work wonders. Other writers of that, contemporary writers, writers of that period, alluded to this in some of their writing about how that, however this salve was made, it seemed to do great things. But the Lord offers to anoint their eyes with eye salve. In other words, take away their spiritual blindness and give them spiritual sight. The intent of the Lord's Discipline of them was for their profit. And when the Lord disciplines us, it's always for our profit. It's not to mock us. It's not to make us look small. It's not to belittle us in any way. But instead, it's for our own good. It's for our own benefit. Just as Hebrews chapter 12 talks about, the Lord chastens those whom He loves and every son in whom He delights in. If you are, he said, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, if you are not uh, experiencing the chastening of the Lord, then you are illegitimate and not even really sons. And so in that sense, the chastening of the Lord offers to us something of the assurance of salvation that we desire. But yet, very quickly, that needs to fade into action to change our habits, to change our behavior. The Lord followed the call to repentance in verse 19 with a very tender, gracious invitation in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine or sup with him and he with me. This verse has sadly been taken out of context time and time again. In fact, a lot of gospel tracts that you pick up will have this verse. And so, oh, the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart wanting to come in. What's the problem with using it in that kind of a context? Well, it's never good to take Scripture out of context 
because someone else will come along and they'll take it out of context in a way that you don't like. And maybe they don't like how you've taken another scripture out of context. Kind of like the classic example of, of telling someone, did you know that the Bible says there is no God? Actually, what the Bible says is the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But yet, if you want to nitpick, that phrase, there is no God, can be found right there in the Bible. And so when you lift any verse out of context, there's a problem. This verse is written to the, a specific church, the church at Laodicea. And in that sense, it's, it's also written to the church of all ages. The picture is like this. You see those doors there at the back. I'm up here preaching or we've, we've been singing. We've had special music. We've had all these activities today. Scripture has been read. Prayers have been offered. And all the time we're going through these motions of things. But yet somebody say, what is all that knocking noise back there on the door? Now I hear it over here on one of these windows. And now it's over here on one of these windows. And now it's back here somewhere. This knocking sound. What is that? Would somebody see what's going on? What is disturbing our service? And the irony of all ironies is that someone gets up and looks and says, Oh, it's just Jesus out there. I told him to quit making so much noise so we could go on with our service. That sounds crazy. It sounds laughable. But that is exactly what Jesus is saying to the church at Laodicea. Behold, I'm standing at the door and knocking seeking to come in and be a part of the church, and you don't seem to want me there. Everything's on autopilot. You have meetings on autopilot. My name is rarely even mentioned. You sing. You preach. You gather together. You fellowship. You eat. You laugh. You do everything. But I'm not really there. And I'm not really welcome there. Oh, I was a long time ago. But I quit coming and no one noticed. Nobody bothered to stop and check why I wasn't there anymore. But he says here, if that door will be opened, I will come in to him. I'll dine with him and he with me. Now, we can sit down and we can eat with someone, and it's just eating and maybe a little bit of fellowship. But back in this day and time, there was a lot more intimacy associated with eating with someone. You remember how Jesus got in big trouble with the religious leaders in the Gospels because it says, this man talks to sinners. This man... Fellowships with sinners. And here's the one that really got him. This man eats with sinners. Remember when Zacchaeus come to know Christ, the Lord says, Zacchaeus, you come down out of that tree, I'm going to your house today. And they ate and they fellowshiped with one another. A tax collector. How dare Jesus stoop down and fellowship and eat of all things with such an evil sinner. But that is exactly the point. Jesus has said, none of you are really worthy 
It's implied here. Because you've rejected me and you've rejected me, I've knocked and knocked on the door. Nobody will come. I've knocked until my knuckles are sore. And no one will let me in. You just keep on doing church. The sound of doing church is drowning me out. And even when there's a pause and you do hear me, you ignore it. But he says, I'll still. If you'll let me in, I'll be glad to come in. Notice finally, there's a promise to this congregation in verses 21 and 22. All true believers are overcomers. Every one of the seven letters have ended the same way. To he who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. There's a word to the overcomers every time. Jesus overcame all that this world threw at him during his earthly ministry. Even to the point of his arrest, subsequent beatings, crucifixion. And then we know he rose again and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. As a sign, as a display that his work was complete. And he promises that he who overcomes, they'll be right there with me. I will grant with him to join me in heaven. In the throne room of God. The right to sit with Jesus on his heavenly throne is one of the many promises given to overcomers. In other words, if we are with Christ, we will be victorious. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him, and all my love is due Him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. The question this morning for you is this. Are you with Christ? As an individual, are you with Christ? Is your family with Christ? Are you serving Him? Church, are you with Christ? Or are you lukewarm like the Laodicean church? And we know what the Lord thinks of that. The Lord wants us to be red hot. He wants everything that we do to be done for Him, because of Him, and in His name. And not just say that, but really mean it from the depths of our heart. Christ deserves to be the Lord of the church, which is His body. Let's pray together. Lord, as we bow before You this morning, we see the words that are so graphic that you spoke to the Laodicean church. And Lord, we're, we fear in many ways of being like that. We fear that our own lives are lukewarm. We remember a time, maybe when we first got saved, that they were hot. But they've cooled off. Now they're tepid at best. Lord, there was a time even in this church's life or in any church's life 
Maybe when it was first planted. Maybe decades ago. Maybe at some time. That there was a lot more excitement about you than there is now. And Father, you're saying to us this morning. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Will anyone let me in? Father, this morning, we pray that you would work and move in this time of invitation. Draw people unto yourself. Let us see this morning, someone who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, come and confess you, receive you into their heart. Maybe some need to unite with this church body. Maybe some need to recommit themselves. Some need to just kneel at the altar and pray. That you would heat them up, heat up their spiritual lives. Lord, you know the needs amongst all of us. You know what's in all of our hearts. We pray this morning that your spirit would move in this time of invitation. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.